The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is a carefully devised scientific strategy, then Backchat is a toddler throwing chemicals in a beaker. As ever, we've gathered a dream team of reporters ready and raring to gossip their way through the next 20 minutes or so, and with any luck, we'll get some science in there too. This month, artificial intelligence is getting creative. Plus, how to get a story when your contributors keep their cards close to their chest. And we'll ask whether space missions should be fully planned out before they're started. I'm Noah Baker, and this month we've got a particularly international backchat crew for you. In Munich, Germany, it's Alison Abbott. Hi, Noah. Uh, I cover science policy in Europe and uh, Mediterranean countries and things like neuroscience. And in Colorado, the United States, it's Alex Whitsey. Good morning. I'm an Earth and planetary sciences reporter with a bit of astronomy dashed in there as well. And next to me here in London is Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, and I'm here in London. And when I don't cover black holes, I cover also other things such as uh, physics, chemistry, maths, and uh, AI. And speaking of AI, that's the first thing that's coming up in this show. Artificial intelligences have been developing fast in recent years, and they're getting really good at analysing things, stuff like speech, images and video. But now AIs are being asked to stop analysing and get generating creating images based on nothing but text and some training. Could be useful for astronomers, but what does this mean in the era of fake news? Plus, political unease is building around the world. As scientists become more anxious, are journalists struggling to piece together their stories? How do you report if you can't quote your sources? And stay tuned as we take a peek at Mars 2020, an ambitious space mission with big objectives. But the precise plan for how to achieve them hasn't quite been ironed out yet. When's the right time to launch these missions and how much planning should be done before they get going? But Davide first. So to that AI, it seems that we're hearing something new about artificial intelligence every week. Tell us what have scientists been getting algorithms to do now? This is something that's been brewing for a few years, but it's reached hot levels of buzz, uh, like I would say, in the last few months. It's a technique called generative adversarial net. The idea is that you have two neural networks. So neural networks normally are these like virtual neurons that train themselves by uh, sort of uh, analyzing large quantities of data and then are able to recognize cats from dogs, for example. But there's also neural networks that can be flipped on their head and they can be used to produce data, produce, say, for example, an image that um, that would correspond to a classification. So instead of saying, look at this, what is it? Is it a dog? You say, I want a dog, make me an image of a dog. 
they're not always completely uh, believable. They, they they can't always fool you. Uh, sometimes you get soft dogs, they call them, because they, they, they kind of look like bits and, and pieces of dogs, but kind of melted in, a, in an oven. But, but it's, it's become more and more uncanny. So, for example, uh, some pictures we used um, in my article online are uh, synthetic pictures of um, mountains and volcanoes, which look really realistic, they are also limited in a way. They they are rather small, so um, the technology isn't good enough yet to make high resolution pictures. But you know, if you don't zoom in, then then they look quite realistic. And so you've been looking into ways in which this could be used for uh, scientists, particularly astronomers. Tell us how could this particular technology help astronomers in their work? In many ways, it turns out. So there's one particular project where they are producing these uh, synthetic images of galaxies because they want to train their software at recognizing when galaxies are distorted by the curvature of space-time. So, so what deficit are they using these algorithms to make up for? Do they just not have complete data? Is it just too noisy? Why do we need the algorithms in the first place? Well, the problem is that if you use real images, you don't know to what extent the galaxy, it's a, it's a galaxy that looks weird or it's a galaxy that is effectively gravitationally lensed. Whereas when, if you make it from scratch, then you have control over all these parameters. This potentially seems like it could be quite useful in this context, but it strikes me that there are other situations where this sort of technology could not only be not useful, but perhaps maybe even a little bit dangerous. And this is something that came up in your reporting. Yes, and I and I came across, uh, for example, in speech synthesis. Now they're using these neural networks to say read the text with the voice of I don't know George W. Bush. Uh, so, for example, Adobe has been working on this. They call it the, the Photoshop for sound or for voice. And we'll get to a point where we hear a voice on a podcast, and we could swear that it's uh, you know I don't know President Trump's voice. But in fact, it's a synthetic one. Something which seems particularly uh, nerve-making. That's not a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Something that makes me slightly nervous in an era where people are very worried about fake news. I, I suppose at least so far we've been able to trust our eyes and trust our ears, but things are getting more complicated if AIs can get involved. Yes, and, it, and in fact, it's being applied not only to sound, but also to video, where you could make video of people that don't exist or, or, or people who exist doing things that they haven't done in reality. So, so some of my sources have said that they're quite concerned about this. Yeah, and I would just add, too, that from my perspective, the, the things that mostly tend to get altered and, and picked up and go viral when they're, in fact, incorrect information do tend to be images, right? I mean, there's sort of the UFO over volcanoes thing, which um, we can sort of realize that at one level is probably not an accurate, not an accurate photo. Um, but then there have also been, um, you know, photos related to the new president and elsewhere where, where people have sort of cast them in different contexts than, than what they really are. And I mean, as long as we're all sort of paying attention and, and using our usual journalistic filters, we always have to ask, where is this information coming from? Is this information reliable? Um, and, and we're pretty, you know, I think we're pretty well attuned to trying to make sure that, that images are in fact correct and not photoshopped. This concept of voice printing and, and, and sort of fake audio recordings is, is, is a bit sort of a whole nother level, right? Sort of Orwellian. But um, I, I think 
I would be surprised if journalists just took at face value some recording that was released supposedly in somebody's voice without any additional information. I mean, you know, we need more than just an audio file. We need more than just a photo to be able to report on something. Could we need to start, you know, I suppose, employing an expert to establish, sort of verify the authenticity of a recording or of an image before journalists can report on it? I mean, I think that's a practice that's done already in, in, in a number of journalistic areas. I mean, there are, are for instance, um, journalistic outlets will hire independent experts to do tests on whatever type of documentation, whether it's, say, it's an environmental uh, issue and there's maybe a question about the, um, you know, the samples that have been gathered. Journalistic outlets will often hire independent experts to vet that. So I think it's a practice that's already done, but uh, it will be really interesting to see where this goes, as you point out. Well, at least at the moment, we're still very early days. And as long as you're not a low resolution image of a galaxy or a volcano, I think we can guarantee you're probably real or at the very least photoshopped. Moving on to a subject which is a little bit more political. Alison, you were recently on the news chat on the Nature podcast telling us about the scientific turmoil that's happened in Turkey. You travelled there in January this year to report on the news following July's military coup from the end of last year. Um, And there are thousands of scientists who've been left without jobs. Many more are nervous about what the future holds. And it's a very difficult situation, to say the least, for everyone involved, but one which posed a particular challenge for you as a reporter. Uh, Yes, I I visited Turkey for a week at the beginning of January. Um, All sorts of things happened, including um, the, the weather was against me. There were snowstorms that Turkey had never really encountered before that uh, more or less locked us all in, in in Istanbul. So the mood was very down, generally. That's impacted how much scientists were willing to talk to you or willing to be named in your stories. Well, of course, naturally. I mean, the stakes there are very high. I couldn't go in there and say... Um, the situation, the political situation looks pretty grim. What do you think? What do you think of your government? Of course, I couldn't say this directly and then hope that scientists would feel comfortable telling me this and um, and being quoted on it. Uh, so in this sort of situation, you want to be able to convey exactly what's happening, exactly what the mood is. Uh, but you are a little bit constrained, so you have to plan around this. So how is it that you go you got you got around this problem you know what 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 are your tricks and tips Well I don't like to quote, think of it as a trick but it's it's just a strategy you know when I went to the labs I actually asked people simply about their science I told them that I would be talking only about their science uh, not asking their political views or anything uh, people spontaneously did tell me about their nervousness but when I reported from those meetings inside the lab I only reported, you know, this person has an ERC grant, they've made had this success, they've been able to do this. Yes, they're nervous, but they want to stay, or yes, they're nervous and they want to leave. Um, the other side of it, I got through a different style of interview where I actually sought out people who were in particular difficulties. Like, for example, somebody who has been... Uh, fingered for alleged sympathy with the um, Kurdish separatist movement and being fingered is sufficient to get you sacked to make sure that you would never have a job in government ever again in your life and maybe even lose your passport. 
um, I identified people who would be prepared to talk to me on Skype so I could see them and we could have a proper chat and talk to people that that know them to sort of confirm all of this. And then I reported them um, without using their name. And I had a couple of those that I could use alongside quite a lot of real names of real people who are doing science. Now, these kinds of problems might be relatively commonplace for journalists that work in war zones, that work on particularly difficult um, political problems. Perhaps not something that people would assume science journalists regularly regularly sort of encounter. Was this something that you've encountered before, um, Alison, and is it something that you've had to sort of learn to overcome? Uh, yes, I think never maybe quite as severe as the current situation in Turkey, which is um, very close, almost close to civil war one could consider. Mostly, of course, I work in Europe, European Union, and these issues don't apply. But there are also other reasons why people may not want to give their names in in, um, other scientific journalist stories. For example, if you're doing a story investigating a scientific fraud, you might imagine a young scientist who's um, exposed the fraud, sort of like the whistleblower or somebody who may not have blown the whistle but would like to contribute to having the truth out. They don't necessarily want to do that at the cost of their career. And um, if the person that that is being exposed is a powerful person, um, that could happen. So So you do have these situations where you have to keep people's names back. And I wonder, increasingly, it seems that many science stories are becoming more politicised, especially with the sort of divisive events of the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. Is it becoming harder to find people to talk to in the first place? (laughs) Um, We actually have done a a couple of stories with uh, scientists who do support Trump. Um, The question of sort of how how to get sources and and, and how to get information and, and how to protect those sources is, a, of course, a very complicated one. Um, definitely the level of, uh, of paranoia right now is, is quite high, and, and that may well turn out to be justified. Um, you know, we aren't, we aren't too sure yet. I, I would say that today, I mean, we have, uh, you know, the, the digital age is, is more digital than ever, and we have all sorts of tools. So all these, all these scientists and agencies are able to, to, to pass information uh, securely to reporters. So it's been a very, it's already sort of a very interesting experiment in, in what scientists who work within the government can say and what they're able to sort of, you know, more secretly leak to reporters on the side. And Alison, tell me, how do you include these sources in your article if you have to just write anonymous for for all of these people? Well, of course, you have to bear in mind that for the readers, um, if everything is comes from anonymous sources, the article is definitely perceived as being unreliable. In my story, I think I quoted about 10 people and added two where I explained why they couldn't be named. And I think that did not take away from the authority of the piece. But if I had had to, to take away everybody's name, I think really that wouldn't have been a story at all because nobody could have believed it. You can you can get around this by not quoting people directly, but using um, you know, the current mood suggests, uh, uh, well-informed sources say, etc. But anything that's too clandestine starts to... Um, I don't know. I, I, th- I think it prompts warning bells in the mind of the reader. I don't know what anybody else thinks about that. I think it's especially true in the case where the sources are people in 
positions of power who may be suspected of wanting to manipulate the press and the readers, right? Maybe this wasn't particularly the case in your story, right? Yeah, and I absolutely agree with Allison that uh, you always want to fight to get everybody on the record as much as possible, but that's not always possible. And so if you have a story, as, as, as you said, Allison, with maybe, you know, 10 people and maybe eight of them are named and two are anonymous and you lay out very clearly why you granted anonymity to those sources, then, you know, I, I think that makes it clearer to the reader as to, to what you're doing and why. And, and with the, with the large number of name sources, you also have, um, you also have that credibility. Okay. And moving on to our final story, Alex, you've been covering big space missions for quite a while now. And there's a particular one that's been in the news a lot recently, Mars 2020. Now, this Mars rover mission has some pretty lofty goals. Can you tell us what it's trying to achieve? So Mars 2020 is the latest in NASA's sequence of Mars missions. They've been sending rovers since, oh gosh, 1996 was the first Mars rover that they sent. And um, the one in 2020 that they're essentially starting to build now is going to be sort of the culmination of exploring Mars. And the whole thing about it is that it will be drilling and collecting rock samples and basically laying them down on the Martian surface for some future mission, which we don't know yet, uh, to come and collect and bring back to Earth. So the really interesting thing here is how NASA has essentially decided to build a rover to go and collect the samples and lay them down, but they have no strategy, really, uh, yet for how to get them back. Um, There are, you know, sort of notional missions on the books, um, but there's no money scheduled for now. So, you know, these tubes could be lying there for decades, like, hello, please come pick me up and take me home. It kind of raises this question of, you know, do you go and do sort of part of a long-term strategy, like collect the rocks and then not actually, you know, finish that up? And is there a thought that maybe someone else might go pick them up if NASA can't complete the mission itself? Uh, China has a lot of plans for Mars exploration as well, too. The Europeans could build a a spacecraft and then also private companies. So SpaceX um, from Elon Musk has what they call a Red Dragon concept uh, to fly again in 2020, because that's a good launch opportunity for Mars, um, an unmanned capsule there. And so SpaceX or some other private company could be the one to develop the technology to actually, the hard thing here is building a rocket that will blast you off of Mars and get you back to Earth. So yeah, it could very well be a private company as well too. Is it commonplace to launch a mission if the end of the mission hasn't, or the second follow-up mission that's vital to complete the overall goal hasn't yet been designed or even necessarily conceived? Um, That's a great question. Nothing springs immediately to mind. There, There might be an example, but I'm not thinking of it right now. I mean, there have been lots of sort of sequences of planned exploration where, you know, sort of the completion never actually happens. I mean, you think about the Apollo missions to the moon, there was going to be a whole string of those and they just got canceled at the end for for financial and other reasons. But this this notion of kind of setting into, into motion a, a sample return where the first stage of sample return is done and the second is still sort of an open question, you know, that, that, that seems a bit a bit unique to me. Are there other things that are going to be achieved on this mission other than just the sample return? Is it going to be a complete waste if the second half never happens? <laughs> That's a great question. And, uh, you know, I kind of think, I mean, their stated goal is um, they have several stated goals. One of them is to explore geology of Mars and to understand its environment at this landing location and so on. Very similar to what the Curiosity rover is currently also doing on Mars. Um, but, you know, it's they're building it specifically to, to collect these samples. So you have to kind of think if they don't ever bring them back, 
I mean, I mean, it just seems like a terrible waste, right? Why, why, why has it happened like this? Why, is, why have they agreed to launch the mission now before coming up with the rest of the plan? NASA's been wanting to do Mars sample return for a very long time, and it has sort of sporadically started ideas now and again. The basic answer is it costs a heck of a lot of money, and to commit that amount of money to the Mars exploration program um, over such a long period of time that would be needed is just politically difficult to do. So at this point, NASA basically said, look, you know, we've got some money. If we don't start now, we're never going to do it. So you know what? We're just going to build this thing and do the first stage and, you know, cross the, cross the bridge when we get to it. Maybe they'll pull it off. You know, I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> Absolutely. So in this particular case, this is a large space mission where uh, things have started, have been funded without the end sort of being completely uh, worked out ahead of time. Now, this might seem a bit bizarre for a mission to send a probe or a device of some kind to another planet. But is this something that happens in wider science? I mean, I'm thinking of many, many large scale projects which are started, which potentially don't have an end in sight. Well, I think um, you could name very many. I imagine that that are based on hypothesis and you don't know exactly what's going to happen until you've gathered all the data. I mean, you could take even the example of the Human Brain Project, which is a huge project to um, model the brain. But you don't really know how it's going to do that until you've started your tests and um, more or less until you're halfway through. And also there's there's a lot of projects, especially in the US, that require uh, funding to be renewed every year. So they require the, the like the continued uh, benevolence of the Congress. And I wonder if there are examples of times when, you know, scientific projects which have been started and have not managed to succeed and have just completely failed in their attempts. Well, in the, in the United States, there is a very famous case of the superconducting super collider, which... Um, I believe they spent about $2 billion. Um, and, you know, they started digging these huge tunnels. It would have been much larger than the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. And then uh, Congress decided to pull the plug. And so the, the, the SSC was never completed. And uh, there's still these cavernous holes in the Texas ground. Well, here's hoping that the Mars 2020 mission doesn't go the way of the superconducting supercollider in the States. And with that, I would like to say thank you to Alex Witsey in the US, Alison Abbott in Germany and Davide here in London. Find all of their stories and more at nature.com forward slash news. And for more science filled stories for your ear holes, head over to nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And we're always happy to hear from you. What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? Let us know at nature podcast or at nature news or by email at podcast at nature.com. I'm Noah Baker and thank you for listening. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.